Find somebody and tell them good morning. What are you turned into? Why? Open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you. There's none like you. To the darkness you shine And out of the ashes we rise There's no one like you There's none like you Oh, our God is greater Our God is stronger God, you are higher than any other 
into the darkness and into the darkness you shine and out of the ashes we rise there's no one It's like a whole world to them because for the first time they have received this precious gift. Operation Christmas Child gives our church an opportunity to touch the world. It's a great adventure to evangelize. You've got an army of volunteers that pack the boxes that are helping OCC to take the gospel literally to millions of children. This is the Good Samaritan work that the Lord is looking for people to do. Getting people locally to think globally. What I love about OCC is that they are intentional about pouring into the lives of kids. 
something, receive a box, and also an invitation to come back and learn more about Christ. We just don't want to just hand out a box and stop there. We want them to grow in their faith. It's a great tool, an effective tool to reach communities with the gospel of Jesus. It's exciting to get people to heaven, but it's also exciting to get heaven to people. It is that time of the year for Operation Christmas Child, and we are very excited to be involved. I've had the privilege of going on uh, about four of their uh, the, the, the parties they have to give the kids the presents, and it is, it is such a wonderful way to reach people for the gospel. So we want to encourage you, Carpenter's Way, we are the regional hub for Operation Christmas Child. So that, what that means is uh, 50 miles in every direction. Uh, each little community has a church that collects the boxes, and then in a one-week period, they bring them all here, and we put them in, I think we're having three semi-trailers this year that will fill up, and uh, we will send them on to Dallas where each box is opened and cleared to go international. And uh, I, I tell you, there are a lot of philanthropic organizations uh, that, that feed the hungry and, and care for the needs in the name of Jesus, but don't present the gospel. This organization is intentional with the gospel as well as with follow-up. It is a phenomenal organization. You couldn't spend a better $9 uh, than, than uh, the Operation Christmas Child. So a couple things. Number one, it's time to sign up if you haven't. We need you to take a spot out there to help us collect. Uh, there, there are, there's a need, even if you can't, I, like I can't, because of my back issues, I can't pick up the boxes and put them in the trailer, or I'm not supposed to. I keep being told by Jack, can't and shouldn't are two different things, but I... I'm not, I shouldn't pick up the boxes and put them in the trailer, uh, but it, it is such a fun week, you guys, and so we need you to sign up. As uh, between church this morning and Bible study or after church, if you could look at the list and see where our needs are, we would uh, sure appreciate uh, you coming in. Uh, some people take them in and register them, some people put them in the crates, and some people load the crates into the truck on that Monday, the final Monday. So uh, this is your announcement. We need you. If you can't participate that week, make sure you're packing a box. You can go to a Hobby Lobby. Uh, a side note, uh, we have the paper, the cardboard boxes, uh, Operation Christmas Child boxes, but if you go to Hobby Lobby, for a buck, you can buy a plastic one, or at uh, Walg uh, Walmart, they have a plastic one for a dollar, and that becomes the, the, the most long-term gift because those kids just, uh, they keep stuff in it. So if you're able to put them in plastic boxes, uh, that's cool too. So anyway, Operation Christmas Child's coming up, and we want you to be involved in that. And, and uh, it is an exciting time. I know some of you have been griping on the Internet about Christmas decorating. You don't have to, but we are, what, three movies deep in uh, Hallmark Christmas, Julie? Is that uh, where we're at? Several trees started to make it their way around the house. And uh, I love it because the kids are gone, and it's just for us. And... Uh, we love this time of the year. Bing Crosby is singing in our house. We're getting a personal concert. Uh, we will be glad he's done on the 26th of December, but between now and then we listen to a lot. And for you haters out there, go ahead and have your stinking turkey. We're starting early. But having said that, uh, in your worship guide, there is a, an insert I said would be in there this week. These are the holiday events for Carpenter's Way family. Please, please, please take note of the activities. Put them on your calendar. Uh, the first one coming up after Operation Christmas Child. So we serve hard and fast for a week, and then 
on November 18th through the 25th, and then the 26th, Tuesday night. It all ends. The trucks are loaded. The trucks are gone on uh, Tuesday morning, the uh, November 26th. That night, we have our Agape Feast. And if you're new to Carpenter's Way or you're watching on the internet, Agape Feast is open to everybody in our church family. It is our, we, uh, because we have such a large church, uh, we have one all-church um, buffet a year, um, a pig out. That's, it, that is what it is. And basically, that's the Agape Feast. And we want you to come. We will empty. We'll, we'll clear the chairs. We'll turn this into a restaurant or a, a place to eat, a dining hall. And out there, there will be more food than there are people. And uh, you'll come, and we just, we just eat together. It, it isn't a chance for me to preach. It's, uh, I may do a five-minute devotional, but ultimately we eat together, we laugh together, we spend time together, and, uh, and then we go home. And then we go home to prepare for Thanksgiving. Uh, information about the Agape Feast is in the worship guide. Um, we encourage you. Uh, each family needs to bring two dishes to share with everyone else. And uh, we really prefer side dishes, your favorite side dishes, because that's what everybody likes about Thanksgiving anyway. So I uh, just encourage you on that. If you have any questions, <clears throat> please feel free to call the church office in that. But that is coming up in two weeks. So it is, uh, it is upon us. Um, continuing to move through announcements. Tonight is our annual... Brad, why don't you come on up? Tonight is our annual business meeting. And uh, 5 o'clock tonight, for the last two weeks, out in the welcome area, <clears throat> excuse me, we have had our, our budget for next year. We vote on that, as well as the names, and names are in here, of nominees for church offices. Uh, you there will be no time for questions tonight about these names. These are yes or no. They're not picking one over the other. Uh, the reason we do not do that is out of respect for these people. If you have a concern about these folks, you need to have talked with us before tonight's meeting. Uh, there will be a short time for questions about the budget if you have them, but that's 5 o'clock tonight. Usually the meeting lasts about 10 minutes. A quorum is however many comes, so uh, please plan on joining us tonight if you're a member and voting on these. I have one more thing before I turn it over to Brad uh, that I'd like you to do, and I'm asking for you to do us a favor. If you have served in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or the, uh, or the um, Coast, Guard. Coast Guard, gosh, I haven't written right here the Coast Guard. My last church, we had uh, most of the people who actually ran uh, the Coast Guard station up on the Lake Erie went to my church, and they really made them mad when I forgot them. <clears throat> Could you stand up, please, if you served? <laughs> Stay standing. So <clears throat> would, you just, would you just remain standing for a second? Um, I want to highlight, I want to make sure you understand that Memorial Day is a bigger holiday, and that's when we honor those who have passed away. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of griping about our military today, but you, these, these ladies and gentlemen stand ready so that in a moment's notice, they can go anywhere to protect our interests, and that is a wonderful thing. And, and whether you served with a gun in your hand or you served uh, cooking for our troops, I was just reading this week, I'm speaking at a veterans thing tomorrow, and I was just, I was just reading this week. In the Army, for every one that carries a gun, there are seven people that support that person. In the Marines, for every one person that carries a gun, there are five people that support them. And uh, that may be most of you, and uh, you are under attack in the media and stuff, uh, but I want you to know we appreciate you, and so we're going to take a moment. Would you, would you find one of these people, shake their hands, and then uh, we'll move on with our service. So take a moment. Thanks, buddy. Is anybody here? Did you serve? Thank you. Where did you serve?
guys can see anything out there. I can't see anything past my gut in here. If we can get John Rowan to sit down, we'll get going here. <clears throat> I'm, I'm Brad Bussler. I'm a, a shepherding elder, also a member of the personnel committee, and better known as the door guard on door one over here. Got my prop with me. I, I took all the brochures so no one can get one until I get back to the door. Uh, Anyway, I just wanted to, to make an announcement quick. One of the things the personnel committee requests and, and does, and our church does gracefully every year, is contribute to our uh, love offering for our staff. The staff takes that love offering or the personnel committee, and we divide it evenly amongst the staff. And uh, this is a great way to show our appreciation uh, to our pastors and staff for all the work they do to keep this place uh, running every week. So if you'd uh, consider giving... Uh, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. So if our ushers could come forward for our offering at this time, we will uh, pray about that. He called himself a, a, a door guard because he was a Marine. Wow. I like that. You're supposed to, every time we say that, you're supposed to hurrah. There was only like one, and I happen to know there's at least three or four more in here. You have lost your edge, my friends. You have lost your edge. Uh, let's pray. Let's commit the rest of our service to the Lord. <clears throat> Father, thank you uh, that we can gather this morning and worship you in song as well in your word. And thank you that we get to be a family and love on each other and encourage each other and spur each other on to love and good deeds. Father, I know that there's those who are watching on the internet today. We pray you'd be with them and bless them as well. Fathers, we turn our eyes away from all the business of church and the world. Now, as we look fully in your wonderful face, may the things of the world go str grow strangely dim. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The offering plate passes. If you're able, would you stand and worship with us?
must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to read those last few verses one more time. Just let it sink in what we're reading. Uh, Pick it up in there in verse 9. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him, Jesus, the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. From heaven's throne You came to us and set your heart upon the cross. We'll never know the sacrifice you made. For all our sin and all our shame, you took the nails, you took our place. No one else could do what you have done. One name is higher. One name is stronger than any grave, than any throne. Christ exalted over all. brought us life. You're reigning now, the Savior of the world. Reigning. Oh, you're reigning now, the Savior of the world. One name is higher. One name is strong. Oh, we sing your praise. 
I pray here, but I want you to just take a second, take a minute, you talk to him. You tell him how marvelous, how wonderful. You tell him how you stand amazed at his glory, the fact that he would call you his own. Just take a second. Father, thank you for loving us. When we first got saved, Father, we were amazed at that. There's been times in our lives where we have, we have dived into our flesh and we were brought back by your love and we were amazed at that. To be truthful, Father, day in and day out, I'm not amazed at your love. I just kind of accept it. Thank you for the song that reminds us to think about the wonder of it. Lord, we've, um, we, need, we need to be in awe of you again. So that's what I pray this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If you're not, kids are going to be dismissed at this time. I have shared with you in the past that um, Julie was masterful in planning vacations for our family when my kids were growing up. We have never been on a cruise. We've never been to an all-inclusive resort. We went to Disney World one time when our kids were about 10. I think Zach was 10 or 11, and that was a big expensive mistake because I'm not saying you shouldn't go because we got travel agents in this church, and, and, and they, it's a good thing. But for us, I remember um, one of our funny stories. Forgive me, we've been here so long, I repeat our stories. But when we were at Disney World, we, got to, uh, we, we went to a section of the park. We were the first ones to open that part of the park, and Zach got to ride on a roller coaster with Goofy. It was such a cool day. And uh, as soon as we got off that ride, let's see, so we got in around 9.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning, and I think that was 10.30. And by the time we got off that ride, the kids were ready to go back to the hotel where the pool was. But I had paid the bill, and so I looked at my kids and said, oh, no, we're going to Space Mountain and you will like it. So long story short, I got off Space Mountain alone around 11.30. Julie, the kids were sitting out there, and the, the kids are still wanting to swim at the pool, and Julie leaned over to me in the most loving, supportive way she could and said, are you happy now? And I said, yes, I am. It was a really long fight, an expensive fight that day, but uh, she got right with the Lord and repented, and we're good. <laughs> But we have, uh, we have, there's nothing wrong with taking cruises, there's nothing wrong with going on all-inclusive vacations, they have their own charm and own benefits, but we have, uh, when our kids were young, um, maybe a lot because of expenses, uh, but we decided that we were going to drive the country with our kids. It's fun on Facebook because periodically people put things up there, how many states have you been to? I think we've been to all but three states with our kids, driving through and, and seeing different things. But what we would do is Julie is a, is a master, as I've said, of these vacations, and she would find a location that we were going to head to, Washington, D.C., uh, the Rockies, California. Uh, we have been uh, to uh, North Carolina a few times, just all over, places to go, uh, sometimes to Ohio, Amish country, where she's from. Uh, so we would pick a location that we were going to go as a family on vacation, but then she would go to work and do the magic that Julie does and find these really off-beaten places on the way. And, it, and, and I, I've told you this before, and it's really true. If you were to ask Zach or Anna about their vacations growing up, what was their favorite part, they wouldn't say Washington Monument or Amish country. They would tell you these little quirky gas stations that we would stop in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico on our way somewhere important where the kids could pick out a snack or get a drink 
Or Anna would tell you that listening to Adventures in Odyssey on the car on the way, or now with the, as the technology grew, uh, the kids could pick the music that we played. I know for some of you that would be a nightmare. But our kids uh, grew up uh, watching that Christmas movie, Top Gun, or Christian movie, Top Gun, so they pick really good music. But we would, be, we would be traveling and we would be listening to music and talking and laughing and somehow it would turn into a discussion about the Lord. And I know some of you are thinking, well, that's when they're older. It's a nightmare to take young kids. But even when they were young, uh, we wanted to train them to be in the car together. And so uh, she would have a new toy every hour, something cheap she bought or a snack. And, and it, it was, but, but the point is this, that, that the, uh, the adventure of going to a place, we were always looking forward to getting there, the arrival uh, to see some of the things that they had studied or learned about was awesome. But the relationship was built in a car on the way. The adventures of stopping. I mean, we have stopped in the middle of the badlands uh, of the West, and we have stopped at these little off-the-wall places that sell rocks or have the old dinosaurs from the 40s. She found, Julie found this old in Tucumcari, is that right, New Mexico? Tucum yeah. It's Tucumcari, New Mexico. There is an inn there that has been active and alive since it was a motor inn on the old uh, road in the 40s. And it's still, you, you have a, when you go there, you actually park your car in a little open garage. It, it felt like I was in a Lucille Ball episode. It, it's, it's incredible. Or uh, some of the other, wall drug, I've mentioned that before. Or I remember when we stopped in New Mexico and we were so close to, to, to Lincoln where... Uh, Billy the Kid, and I'm fascinated with Old West lore. And, but there was a sign that says, uh, you know, beware of the rattlesnakes. I mean, how cool is that? You're at a rest station, and you have to beware of the rattlesnakes. Just little stuff like that. Because it was in the journey that we met each other, that the kids grew and got to know their mom and dad and hear our stories and talk about our grandparents. And, and it, it was in that. And I, I think that we definitely, actually, I know we do. We live in a time where we're always... Uh, we're always like the movies. It's like two and a half hours long, and we want to arrive. When we get sick, we, 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 we think that we're in this parathetical mistake time, and we just got to get back to health because then we can start living again. We talk about that. I'm, I want to get back to living again. And just so you know, the journey is living. And uh, sometimes I, I think, it's my opinion, that we even approach the Scriptures like that. Uh, we we want to jump to the story of David and Goliath to find out the secrets of defeating the giants in your life, um, which isn't what the story is about. The story is about no matter how big your giants are, there's a bigger God who has a victory on his own. We should join God in the victory. Or, uh, you know, Daniel and the lion's den. We want to get to those points. We want to we get to Jesus on the cross. We want to study the story about the redemption. But the problem is, if we jump right to the story of redemption, we miss the Redeemer. I mean, we talk about what he's done, but we don't get to know him because it is in the journey. It was in the walk to the cross. The three and a half year journey the disciples had with Jesus, that's when they got to know him. And I think that, uh, you know, Satan, um, our enemy, if he has lost your soul, if you're a child of God, he's not trying to regain your soul. He can't get your soul. What he wants to do is distract our attention. He wants to make us this deep spiritually. So what he does, he gets us to run from story to story without the, without the context, the, the beauty of it, the color that makes it real. And so as we continue our quest to find out who this man is, according to Scripture, we're going to take time to slow down and, and walk with him. And there's stories in there that you read, and they just, well, it's kind of like, oh, that's a nice story. Oh, look, he healed all these people. 
but we don't slow down long enough just to, just to listen to him teach and watch him love on people, and, and, and this morning we're going to do that. Because our goal is not to just know in our study of what this man did. It's actually to know who he was. And for that, we've got to ride in the car with him. We've got to slow ourselves down long enough to look at him between big events, to look at how he interacts with the disciples and how he interacts with crowds that show up. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's walk with him. Uh, you remember where we are in the context. Jesus has just fed 5,000, and we call it the feeding of the 5,000, but it's actually, I think, reasonable. Actually, it's conservative to say it was 20,000. I want to keep reminding you of that because context does matter. It says that there were 5,000 men, and if you added a wife and, a, and a one child, you end up at 15,000 people. But we all know that they didn't have one child. They had multiple children in most cases. So it was probably Jesus feeding 50,000, or tw no, 20,000 is more realistic. But Jesus feeds the 20,000 with a few loaves of bread and fish, and I don't know if you've been paying attention to archaeology, but they just found a church, uh, and it's all over Facebook, or it's, it's on Facebook right now, an article about it, with a mosaic and a floor that's been covered by ash. They just discovered the church, and they wiped it away, and there was a mosaic of Jesus feeding this many people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. Now, again, I want to tell you that this is not a faith that is unreasonable. Somebody didn't make this up in 300 AD. This is actually recorded history of things that happened, and your faith is reasonable, and it is based upon fact, and that's just a cool thing. If you remember, the reason that the crowd met him there was because he was going away. The context was Jesus had just heard that his cousin that he loved and his rabbi, John the baptizer you know him as, has just been killed. And it, it breaks his heart. The disciples have just come back from a missionary journey. So Jesus says, let's go alone to be away. And he, goes, he, he tells them that they're going to go to this, this, this far out place where they can be alone. But when they get there, there's a crowd there. So it says that he ministered to them. Getting to the place he wanted to be alone to mourn his, his cousin's death, Jesus starts ministering to the people because that's what Jesus did. He cared for people. And he ministers to them. And then late in the day, you remember the disciples were freaking out. What are we going to feed these people? And Jesus tells them to feed them themselves. And they go through that, and we've been studying that. If you, if you want to know a lot of the context and culture of that question, go back. It's on the archive on the Internet. You can listen to our study of it. He ministers to them. Then you remember later in that evening as it starts to get dark, Jesus tells the disciples he wants them to get in the boat and go to the other side of the sea, that he'll catch up with them later. And then he stays and he dismisses the crowd. And it tells us that Jesus goes to be alone. And later that night, you will recall that Jesus goes to meet with the disciples, and it tells us that he walked on water. And he's going to walk by them, one of the Gospels tells us, except that they see him and they start crying out in fear. Gee, who are you? You know, there's a ghost. We're going to die. And you remember that night's Peter walking on water. You know the story. If you don't, go back and study it with us or you can read it in the New Testament. They go, they see, they see Jesus walking on water. They challenge him. If it's really you, Jesus, let us walk to you. Peter walks to him. Jesus saves Peter as he starts to drown. And as he walks back and gets in the boat, the disciples expose themselves as they look at Jesus and say, you really are the Son of God. And of course, I told you that in the Greek it says, Jesus said, duh, which is an old Hebrew word. Um, then they end up on the other side and uh, Jesus does some more healings and then you recall that the Pharisees and religious leaders come to him and they begin to challenge him again. You know, and, and Jesus, and then, then you remember that the people who had been fed show up. They get in boats to follow the disciples, because they don't know where Jesus has gone, and they see Jesus there, and they're like, hey, what are you doing here? It's good to see you here. And they said, give us more food. And Jesus says, no, you need me. You, you keep wanting food, and, 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 and you, want, you want me to make you well, but you, what you need is me. And he actually tells them to eat his 
flesh and drink his blood. And he's, he's pushing them to ask more questions because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to my Father but through me. You think you're okay spiritually. You're not. You need me. And it says that they said that his teaching was really hard, so they left. The crowd left, most of the crowd. And then Jesus, in very kind and gentle fashion, turns to the disciples who were silent during all this because there's nothing for them to say except the crowd is leaving, the crowd is leaving, the crowd is leaving, and they're freaking out. And Jesus turns to them, and in the most compassionate Jesus way, you know, that guy you remember, he looks at them and says, are you going to go too? <laughs> I know that's not compassion. I was, I was, that was hyperbole. The truth is Jesus is looking for followers, not fans. He doesn't want fans, he wants followers. He wants people to trust him. He's always pushing the disciples to trust him. And they say, no, we're not going to go. And then basically in a conversation, they say, where else will we find eternal life? So the most important thing they got, you're the only Savior. So we're not going to walk away even though we don't like your teaching. We need subtitles, I said, even though we don't like your teaching. They didn't like his teaching. There was a lot of things that were hard. There was a lot of things that didn't make sense. Uh, if you want to know why I believe that, it's because they're constantly correcting him. They're constantly telling him he's discouraging the crowds. This isn't the only time the crowd leaves. Peter actually goes up to him one side and says, Master, the crowd is leaving. Jesus says, get behind me. I'm here to do the Father's will, not my own. So you're and I are in good company when we go, what is up with that? So they follow him and he tells them good for them. Teaching's too hard. That's the end of that conversation. And we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 15. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So we're just walking with him. That's what the Gospels record for us. Not, not just the big stories, the little ones. These, these little incidental arguments that the disciples have with him and him proclaiming who he is. It's no different than you face. You get an answer to one question and five more, five more are asked, but Jesus just keeps walking and we keep following. Verse 22 tells us a Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, have mercy on me, O son of David. She's acknowledging him as a Jewish rabbi. You're the son of David. You're the one that the Jews prophesy about, but she's a Gentile. She's not a Gentile who's become a Jew. She is a full-blooded, uncircumcised Gentile. And I know some of you are thinking, how can a woman be circumcised? Just work with me here this morning. She is a full Gentile, not an assimilated Gentile into the Jewish people. She's fully Gentile. A Gentile, for those of you who don't know, is a non-Jew. Have mercy on me, son of da oh Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. And we're about to have another gentle moment with Jesus. That's a book I'm going to write. Gentle moments with Jesus, and this will be one of the stories. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. That's code for he ignored her. Matthew's recording this. This was such a big deal, Matthew recorded it. So before you move on with your preconceived ideas about Jesus, how he just walked around and cried all the time, oh, I want you to understand he had a plan. And that plan was in full-blown motion at this point. He ignores her. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. The disciples who see themselves as security guards go, yeah, yeah, she's a Gentile. Good for you, Jesus. Just send her away, Jesus. She's still following us. She's still nagging. She's still hanging around. This is a tenacious woman. They tell him, tell her to, tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. <laughs> that's not funny to you these are the 12 disciples these are the boys these are the ones who love the lost and the hurting right they're the ones who go around hugging people all the time 
you got Jesus ignoring, you got the disciples annoyed, and they're asking Jesus, look, you're, she's not going away. We keep telling her to go away, but she keeps begging to talk to you. Would you just send her away once and for all? You have to ask yourself a second, was Jesus in a bad mood that day? This is not the Jesus that we think. I mean, is it possible that Jesus is setting the disciples up? Of course he was. It was about to be a teachable moment. The disciples tell, tell him to tell her to go away. She's bothering us with all her begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, Sweetheart, I'm adding that, I was only sent to help God's lost sheep, you know, the people of Israel. That's not very nice. I thought he loved all people. But she came and worshipped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. This is not very nice. Just because she's born, not of her own will, but of two Gentile parents, Jesus is teaching her like she's an untouchable. He's engaging her. It isn't right to take food from the children, referring to the children of Abraham, and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true. That's true, Lord. But even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. What is up with Jesus? He's tired. Just a bad day. No. He has a message for the disciples. He sets them up, my friends, to say, agree with him. Yeah. Jesus. Finally, you're acting like a Jewish rabbi. Think about that. Think about what Jewish rabbis and how they treated people. Has, they have no compassion on this woman. And Jesus plays along to make a point. And what's that point? Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14 says it. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. The woman knew that Jesus was her only hope. So she clung on to Jesus like a drowning man clings on to a lifesaver. And she got him. Now this text is often used uh, to teach secrets to getting your miracle. There are ministries, I think, uh, I think Oral Roberts had a ministry called Get Your Miracle or something like that today. Please understand that everybody at some point in your life wants a miracle. For her it was a demon-possessed child to be healed, for you, it could be a diagnosis or pain in your body. For some of us, it could be a better job. But let me be clear, Jesus doesn't always give you what you ask for. No matter how faithful you are, none of us would argue that Paul was probably the most faithful man, even unto death, that the Scriptures record. And yet he prays over and over that God will remove what he calls a thorn in his flesh. Whatever that thorn in his flesh was, he clearly says, God didn't choose to heal me from that. God doesn't always heal, but he always offers himself. Always. Jeremiah, like it says in Jeremiah, if you look for him wholeheartedly like this woman, you will find him. The problem is that most of us become satisfied with a miracle when we can have the miracle worker. Jesus did not come to do miracles alone. The miracles were validation that he should be listened to, that he should be heard. Jesus came to give himself to us. The problem is, too often, we 
confuse having Christianity or all the things, the, the things around Jesus with having Jesus. Jesus wants intimacy with you. And he won't settle for anything less. In Romans chapter 10, 9 through 13, and this is a little bit of a sidebar, it says that if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, not by baptism, not by church attendance or walking an aisle or speaking in tongues, but it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and openly declaring your faith that you're saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in the Lord will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Before we move on in our walk with Jesus, I just, I just want to make it clear that God may or may not heal your body. But if you seek him with your whole heart, you will get what you really need, and that's the Savior, a relationship with Him. Forgiveness from salvation, from the penalty of your sin, no matter who you are or what you have done, you will find Him, you will be saved and adopted into this family. Today is your day of salvation. Today is not the day of your miracle, your fleshy miracle. Today is the day of your salvation. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And if you're thinking here this morning, if he will heal my body, then I will believe in him. You are no different than the Jews who kept asking for another miracle. What your real need is, and the only need you will care about 100 years from now, is salvation and adoption into the family of God. Call on him today, my friend. Call on him today. If you're watching at home, call on him today. Well, how do I do that? Just tell him what you need. Like the thief on the cross. When you, uh, today, when you enter your kingdom... Remember me. Jesus responds, today you'll be with me in paradise. Back to our story. After casting out the demon from within this girl, they walk on. That's it. That's that whole story. Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee the re uh, and the region of the Ten Towns. There was a deaf man with a speech impediment who was brought to him. And the people begged, please note, the people, the crowd, everybody around, friends, family, the people begged Jesus to lay hands on this man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd. Wow. Please make observations. Jesus led him away from the crowd so that they could what? Be alone. He put his fingers in the man's ears. And then he spits on his own fingers and he touches the man's tongue, which I'd like to make a note that's kind of disgusting, but if he heals you, it's okay. Verse 34, looking up into heaven, he sighed and he said, Ephaphatha which means be opened instantly, not over time. Instantly the man could hear perfectly and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Just some observations that I made. Jesus loves these people. He calls a Gentile woman whose daughter is demon-possessed precious or dear. He actually takes this, takes this man away from the crowd that are actually begging. It never says that the man asked for healing. It says the crowd asked for healing. They're begging Jesus. Well, the man may not even have known who Jesus was. He couldn't hear. He may not have been able to speak or, or orate his request, but he does know that the crowd is asking, and Jesus walks over to this guy, and he touches his ears, and he licks his fingers and touches his tongue, and he's healed. And what is Jesus? where has Jesus got this guy when he heals him? This isn't a crowd event. It's a personal event. When a pastor has told you through the years that this is personal between you and God, these stories 
They articulate that. Jesus was not about starting a religion with a mass movement and crowds of people in buildings like this. He was concerned for individuals. He cared for people. And you are people. We are not what he cares about. You are what he cares about. Take your needs to Jesus. He may not give you exactly what you're asking for, but if you keep begging like that woman, you will find life. And let me be clear, there is nothing like living for Jesus. Is it easier than not? Actually, probably is. Is there still pain? Sure. Do we still die? Every one of us. But there is hope in God. Hope based upon His promises. God finds people precious as we journey along. He feels compassion for them. We've seen that when He feeds the 5,000. He cares about people even though He Himself is hurting. Jesus feels great compassion for people, for you. Even if your hurts and you have fears, even if you don't get the healing like these two people, we may not always get a, a healing like Paul's thorn in the flesh, but we can all have Jesus. And there's nothing like Jesus. Just a side note, do not become Baptist. Do not join the assemblies of God's throng. Don't become a Lutheran. You become a follower of Jesus Christ. The rest of that, you can decide where to worship. You can decide who to fellowship with. But at the end of the day, none of that will change your eternity, only a relationship with Jesus. Please, Jesus is your only hope. Back to the the story. After Jesus heals this guy by touching his tongue and putting his fingers in his ears, verse 36 says, Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. Thank you for listening to me, crowd. They were completely amazed, and they said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. We would have said that. But I want to point out in a second what a tragic statement that is. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who can't speak. Of course, every miracle that Jesus performed had been prophesied under the prophets of the Old Testament for making the lame to walk and the blind to see making the dumb to speak and the deaf to hear, making the dead rise again. Everything is prophesied in the Old Testament. And the reason Jesus does it is a validation that he is sent from the Father. That's why he does it. But these people are enamored with the behavior, the activity of Jesus. And it is so tragic because Matthew records for us that their their, their feelings were everything he does is wonderful. The tragedy of this story is they didn't think Jesus is wonderful. They thought what he did was wonderful. That's a tragedy. To like the things of God and not like God. To love the things of God like Christianity or like His healings or the ability to feed but not love God is to miss the point. You understand that, right? I mean, last week we talked about legalism. I want to make it clear that it is much more flesh-oriented to love the laws of God and the, the legalisms of some in Christianity, it is much easier for us to want to be Christian than to follow Christ. Because Jesus Christ is crazy from a human perspective. This is an upside-down kingdom. One moment Jesus is telling you not to minister to anybody that isn't Jews, and then he walks you into a Samaritan village. One day he's telling you not to focus and ask for miracles, but he keeps healing people who do. It's an upside-down kingdom. He says, I've come to establish a kingdom, and yet every time you turn around, Jesus isn't standing up for himself. The disciples were perplexed and confused. Man, this had to be 
Well, it had to be like following Christ today. What do you want from me? Everything. Do we want a healing or do we want Jesus? Jesus is wonderful family and his works in our lives should lead us. The things that we've seen him do, the miracles we're reading about should drive us to trust him and run to him and want him in all things. But instead, in most cases, it makes us to want more of his toys instead of him. Be weary of people who tell you how to feed your flesh in the name of God and by the power of God. Instead of saying what Jesus said, and by the way, nobody had more faith in God's plan than Jesus, and even he prayed that the Father would remove the cup of suffering from him. And the Father said, let me ask again, Jesus prays the night before he's arrested, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. And the Father said to Jesus, no. Next time somebody tells you if you have enough faith, it'll be a yes, you just throw that out. The Father didn't even say yes to Jesus. It's not what we want, but who he is that changes everything. Mark 8, the story continues. About this time, another large crowd had gathered. <laughs> this is going to get a little funny here. And the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and he told them, I feel sorry for these people. They've been here with me for three days and have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they're going to faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. And of course the disciples who feel like Jesus is bringing them into the inner circle at this point. We've got a problem. They replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness, Jesus? We're kind of in a, man, we're in a pickle. We are in trouble, Jesus. Boy, are you right, Yeshua. Man, salvation, you are right. Oh, and we could, gosh, I wish we could feed them. These guys, okay, get this. This is just a couple months or maybe a month or within a month of feeding 5,000 plus women and children, Right? And Jesus brings up the food thing. What am I going to do? They're going to faint. We're going to have a medical emergency on our hands. And the disciples are like, yeah, what can we do about it? Let's think, 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 think. What am I going to do? So Jesus had the great question. By the way, of all the dumb questions asked in Scripture, you could put this as one of the top sins. How much bread do you guys have? By the, by the way, did, did you bring enough bread for 4,000 people? That's how many are here. You're going to see in a moment plus women and children. So there's probably 15,000 people there. Hey, check your pockets. Seven loaves, they replied. <laughs> what, a, what a dumb conversation. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, thank God for them. He broke them into pieces. He gave them to the disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd, a crowd. A few small fish were found too. So Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. Somebody out in the, uh, right now might be thinking, well, how do we know this isn't the same story? First of all, because the number of the crowd is different. You're going to see in a moment. Number two, the number of loaves are different. We, we, uh, we got the loaves from a little boy last time along with fish. This time they, they have seven loaves and fish are added later. Verse 8, they ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets. That's another reason. There's seven large baskets. 
of leftover food. There were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day, crowd that day, plus women and children, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into the boat with the disciples, and they crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. So, all right, I'm, if I'm one of the 12, and that's where I'm trying to put myself in this study of Jesus, I'm thinking, whoa, he did it again. And then when he gets in the boat, I'm thinking, whoa, I don't want to do this one again. It seems like every time I get in the boat with Jesus, I'm either drowning or people are walking on water and drowning. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know, man. I, I, isn't that how you feel with Jesus? When you read through the scriptures, don't you get frustrated with his parables and don't you feel like sometimes going, would you just speak, speak plainly, please? Jesus, I am a Gentile. I live in North America in a small town called Lubkin, Texas. If you would just be more clear, even without a southern draw, I will get it and I will follow. But what if he doesn't want us to get it? What if that's part of his charm? What if our goal is to get it because that's control? What if we want God to tell us when he's returning so that we can make plans for his return when he doesn't want us to make plans for his return? What if Jesus actually is, and I'm just, I'm just playing the devil's advocate, uh, which is weird to do when you're preaching, but if, just for a second, what if actually the conversation he has with that woman who is a Gentile whose daughter is demon-possessed, what if he actually has that conversation in full effort to, dis, to, to frustrate the disciples to actually get them to say the wrong thing so that they can watch him heal a Gentile woman, so that they walk away going, oy vey, what is he doing? I, this doesn't make sense to me. What if the feeding of the 4,000 here, what if Jesus asked them a question to get their mind thinking, to point out how wrong thinking they are so that he can do the right thing? What if Jesus doesn't want to answer all of our questions? He wants to perplex us so we go, and we choose to walk away or stay. And we're going to stay. You're going to stay. Because we know that he's the only Savior. I mean, I want to give us a little credit here. You're not wicked people. I'm not a stupid person. I don't understand God, I wish I understood him more, but I'm not going to walk away. I'm very much like the 11 of the 12 here, sitting in that group going, this time I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Now one of them, and I'm getting ahead of myself in the story here, one of them will be so, become so frustrated with Jesus that he will actually believe that Jesus is not the guy he thought he was, turn him in to be killed so that they can start over. Yes, that's Judas. We'll talk more about that when we get there. You know, Judas wasn't an idiot. He was just wrong, doctrinally and theologically. Just because you go to the right church or you're part of the right group of people doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Judas followed him for three years, considered himself a disciple, was honored by Jesus over and over, but Judas refused to accept Jesus as he was and he had him killed. Sounds a lot like modern Christianity to me. One of the saddest things that I've heard come out of the mouth of people in East Texas in recent years is to make, to bow up and make their point. I refuse to believe in a God who, and then they talk about their, their least favorite uh, doctrine, as if God in heaven is going, okay, I'll change my mind on that because you're not going to follow me. That's Judas. But of the 12, 11 stick with him. And if you want to know how frustrated these men are, watch what happens next in Matthew 16. Later, 
After they crossed over to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring any bread. Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Like half of the other time when Jesus spoke, okay, these are real guys, okay? These are real people. There's 12 of them plus Jesus. There's probably others kind of following around. But these guys are having a conversation. They get to the other side of the sea, and they're looking at each other going, uh, Andrew's like, ooh, I forgot the bread. Philip, did you get the bread? I forgot the bread. I didn't bring the bread either. And they start bickering about the bread. And Jesus, knowing what's going on, he throws his two cents in there. Gentlemen, in the middle of a huddle, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know what the disciples all did, right? Whatever. Who forgot the bread? Watch the story. Jesus knew that they were, uh, what they were saying. So he said, you have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? If, if you have read the Gospels, and I know most of you have, these guys, they went together, but Jesus was their focus. They didn't necessarily like each other all that much. And they're, they're arguing among themselves. This has been a very discouraging two and a half years. This hasn't been very fun. Every time they think they are following Jesus because they believe he's going to set up a kingdom, and they believe that he's the Savior, and they think that they're going to be the greatest in that kingdom. They want to be his wise counsel. These guys have super high, high hopes for themselves. That is exactly what they thought was going to happen. And that keeps getting thwarted by Jesus' teaching and his miracles. He says one thing, he does another. He does one thing, he tells them something else, and it is confusing to them. And then on top of it, he talks about Pharisaical, Sadduceical yeast, and they're all like, Ugh. And at this moment, they must be, I think, my opinion, they are emotionally tired. And they ignore Jesus's, I mean, instead of saying, what are you talking about? Excuse me, everybody be quiet for a second. What, Jesus? What about yeast and, and Sadducees and Pharisees? They don't, even, they don't even give him a second. They ignore his statement, and they start arguing among themselves, and Jesus just rebukes them. You have so little faith. Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves and back baskets of leftovers you picked up? Or how about the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves? I can't tell you why people think those two things are the same thing. Jesus just pointed out they're two different things, but they do. Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and large baskets of leftovers you picked up? At this point, I think the disciples are going, God, we are so stupid, so stupid. What is wrong with us? But they had seen him do this in recent weeks, if not days. And they're arguing among themselves over a few a few loaves of bread. Jesus had done so much in front of them, and they loved Jesus. Don't get me wrong. They loved Jesus. But they needed food. Jesus has done so much in front of us, and we love Jesus. But we need food. Don't you understand, Jesus? I don't, think, I don't think the God in you, the deity, I, I know you're fully God and fully man, but the fully God part probably usurped the fully man part. You don't understand how hard it is down here. I can't take my wife to dinner because we don't have enough money. Or what good's it going to be for my grandkids if I die today? Do you not understand? This is what it looks like when we relegate Jesus to the spiritual side of our life, and then there's real life. This is what the disciples confused. They thought Jesus would take care of the spiritual things, and then you got all these other things going on. So when Jesus did miracles for those people, they didn't think it applied to them. So 
they're tired and they're arguing among themselves. They're going after each other and Jesus breaks in and says, what are you guys doing? Don't you know food is not, it, it is the least of our problems. And isn't that what Jesus said to us? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be taken care of. Do you not look at the birds of the field and how, I, how, I've, how I've adorned them and the flowers, how beautiful they are? If, if my father does that for them, he's going to do so much more for you. Jesus speaks to that. Verse 11, why can't you understand that I'm not even talking about bread? So I'm going to say it one more time. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then at last they understood that he wasn't speaking about yeast as, as in bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is why I believe this text is one of the most important you can understand as a Christian. When you walk with Jesus, you get confused. He speaks in parables that can be confusing. He tells the disciples to go to the Jew, and, he takes, and then he takes them to the Samaritan village. He tells a Gentile woman he only ministers to Jews, then he calls her precious and he heals her. He uses spit to heal a deaf and to mute people, but rebukes people for wanting more miracles. He feeds thousands with a few loaves of bread, and then he talks about not eating the bread of yeast that the Pharisees provide. He sends them into crisis only to solve it, and then rebukes them for fretting in the crisis. That's our Lord. What do we want from Jesus? Better yet, what does he want from us? What do you want from us? I mean, I don't know that they didn't ask this, but if I'm Peter at this point, loudmouth unthinking, which I am a lot, I'm going, what do you want from me? And Jesus said, trust. The benefit of the doubt. You've seen me do so much stuff. How about trusting in me? I mean, not a little trust, but absolute 100% trust and friends, I, this, this actually may be the reason why there's so many doctrinal differences in the church that we can't answer. This might explain why there's so many theological and doctrinal questions that are not clear in Scripture, like how to get your miracle, or why does God heal one person and not another, or what is the balance of free will and God's sovereignty and salvation, or when are you going to rapture the church, Lord? Or who should I marry? There's a lot of you who, who wonder that. God, if you'll just show me who to marry, trust me. I don't want to trust you. I want a map. Or what college to go to. Or how about where to live or where to work or how much money to save for retirement. Lord, I will do exactly what you tell me, but you need to tell me. Why? Because I need to know. Why? Because then I can head there. What if I don't want you to head there? What if I want you just to trust me? There was a crowd of people in John 6 that we learn about that wanted to join Jesus in his ministry. And in John 6, 29, he said this, the only work God wants from you is to believe in the one he has sent. What if he actually means that? What if he doesn't want you to save 50,000 people based upon your zeal for evangelism and he wants you just to make yourself available to minister to those he puts you in front of? What if he's not asking you to go to Africa or even Nacogdoches? He's just asking you to serve him in your place. 
I know you believe in him. That's why you're Christian. I do too. But he's asking us to believe in him in everything and for everything, from food to health. After Jesus feeds this crowd and gets done with the disciples, he warns them. And what's the warning? Be careful of those people that are going to answer your theological questions that I have chosen not to answer. I want you to breathe and think about that. Be careful of joining a group of people or following a man or woman who gives answers to the theological question God himself does not answer. Do you know the question that the disciples ask as they're walking to the mount where Jesus ascended? Are you setting up your kingdom right now, Father? Does anybody remember what Jesus said to them? Anybody remember? Somebody say it. None of your business. That's not very nice. Jesus is always nice. Jesus is always right. He's not always nice. Dads that are healthy are not always nice. They just do what's best. We've got it wrong. Jesus isn't our elf on the shelf or our buddy in our closet or our little pal. He's not a a Christian version of, of that shaking eight ball that answers your questions. He's not a psychic to tell you your future. He just knows your future and he tells you what you need to know. The question is, will we trust him? Does anybody remember what the thing that Eve wanted in the garden that led sin into humanity? I'll remind you, Genesis 3, 6. The woman was convinced of what? Well, she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. When Eve has a conversation with the serpent, she says that God told us we, we, if we eat of the tree, we'll die. You're not going to die. In fact, if you eat it, the serpent said, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What if God's goal in the garden wasn't to make them smart, smart but to make them dependent, trusting? What if his goal isn't to make us the smartest people in the universe, but actually give us hope in his promises and our trust in him? What if from the very beginning of time he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. My burden is light. There is a burden. There is a yoke, but it's easier. And what if that burden is trust? What if the yoke is trust? What if it's, okay, okay, I'll believe in you. It's not not go to the doctor like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Go to the doctor, but it's trusting him at the doctor's office. Like the disciples. Jesus didn't say we should be unconcerned with the food the people eat. He just said God's going to provide it through us. What if he doesn't answer the questions for the sole purpose of keeping us leaning on him? That was the warning to the boys in Matthew 16, 11, and 12. Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? So I say it again. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then at last they understood that he wasn't talking about the yeast in bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So I'm going to wrap up now. Pay attention because I'm going to go fast. God has given you all the information he wants you to have or he's imperfect. We've got everything we need. There are other religious people who come in the name of Jesus, who will try to answer questions that the scriptures have not clearly answered. They are deceptive and being used by Satan. So you must protect yourself in the same way that the disciples were being warned to. You have to know God for yourself. 
They can listen to his teaching. You have to read it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is the very breath of God. That's what that Greek word for inspired is. It's the very, it's the very vocal outpouring of his lungs. That's what the word inspired means. It is useful to teach us what's true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, and it teaches us to do what's right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is alive and it's powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Now, our flesh wants to know more than God wants to give us but so did you as a 10-year-old kid. God has the big picture. He's got the context, and not a 100-year context, a million-year context. And he's given us a tiny, small piece of information. That's what the book of Job's all about. Where were you when I created all of this? Where were you when I caused the dough to give birth? Where were you? Actually, let me ask you another question. Where do I store the snow? Where do I keep the hail before it falls? And Job just realizes he's way outmatched. And God basically says, gird yourself up like a man. Trust me. That's what he's asking for us, family. It's what he's asking from the 11. It's what he's asking from you. To trust him not just in spiritual things, but in all things. And I warn you that if you are walking with God, and I know you are like the disciples, your biggest struggle is probably not going to be adultery or drug abuse or alcohol. Your biggest struggle is going to be every moment of every day believing that he takes care of his. We just want to know how. I don't want to tell you how. Trust me. That's really hard. It takes faith. Write that one down and think about it. It actually takes faith to trust. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for my family here who knows you and loves you. Now help us trust you. Give us the faith to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes. If you're visiting, I'd love to shake your hand up here. Have a wonderful day.